Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. I'm Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. This episode is number 292, being recorded on Wednesday, June 8th, at the beautiful New York City Google headquarters for Zenith Basecamp. And uh, as a special treat, we're recording this show in front of a live audience. That applause is super important because I have no credibility with our audience, so they wouldn't have believed me if you didn't applaud. Thank you very much. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. As always, I'm here with my co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Uh, so I think I've met most of you, but for those of you who I haven't mentioned uh, met yet, I'm thrilled to do so today. I, uh, I, as was mentioned earlier, I'm the Chief Commerce Strategy Officer for Publicis, your Almost certainly going to hear from Scott that he thinks my title is super funny. Um, and uh, I'm a fourth generation retailer. Back in the dark ages, I helped launch e-commerce at some funny retailers like uh, Blockbuster and Best Buy and Target. Um, and today I get to work across uh, all the publicist group with all the co- clients that care about commerce. And I'm super interested to know which clients don't care about commerce at, at this point. Um, and so that's me. Uh, but like I said, many of you have met uh, my annoyingly uh, successful co-host, Scott. Uh, you may not have met. So, Scott, can you tell us a little bit about yourself as they flip the slides? Sure. And congrats on that uh, win at Blockbuster on the digital. That was that was good. You crushed that one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's super fun. Every presentation ever done at Publicis starts with a big Blockbuster logo and uh, saying, like, don't let this happen to you. Isn't there one still open in Alaska? Have you gone to visit that one? Uh, Bend, Oregon. Okay, there yeah. you go. I knew you would know that. <laughs> Have you talked to them about their digital strategy? Uh, uh, it, it's on the to-do list. Okay. Uh, I'm a serial entrepreneur from the Research Triangle Park area. And um, so I started a company, I have an engineering background, started a company that did developer tools. And then this thing called the internet came along. And I have a lot of weird hobbies. One of my hobbies, uh, we'll talk about a lot of those today, is I'm a Star Wars fan. So I started, I had this, I sold my first company. So I had this dangerous combination of e-commerce was born and I had a lot of liquidity. So I started buying really big Star Wars stuff. Um, It stays at my office. I have an agreement with my wife that it does not come into the house. Uh, sadly, <laughs> uh, I probably wouldn't be married if it did. So there you go. Um, so I was there at the early days of e-commerce. That company I parlayed into a company called Channel Advisor. So started that in 2001. That's a B2B software as a service platform for selling on marketplaces. Are there any Channel Advisor customers in the house? We have about 3,000 customers. No. Nope. Uh, and um, then so uh, Channel Advisor's biggest partners are eBay and Amazon. So I've, I've been I'm also he's retail geek. I'm Amazon geek. If we have to brand ourselves, maybe a little bit of eBay geek. So I'm on the marketplace side. And that's how I met Jason. We were on a board together uh, at shop.org. And I remember the first meeting I was there with Jason, the CEO of NRF walks in and he's like, does anyone have a question? And Jason raises his hand and says, why do we have the worst website on the Internet? And I was like, 
I'm gonna, I need to get to know this guy. <laughs> uh, so he called him out on the terribleness of the NRF's website, which was kind of fun. Um, and then uh, took Channel Advisor public. So that was one of my things as an entrepreneur I always wanted to do was do an IPO. So I got to do that in 2013. That was a lot of fun. Got to ring the bell. I'm a, uh, also a CNBC junkie. So got to meet uh, Jim Cramer. Uh, my wife calls him the guy that yells every night on TV and makes all the loud noises. So that was fun. Uh, and then my current startup, uh, let's go to the next slide. Next two slides. Yeah, it's called Spiffy. And next slide. So Spiffy was actually, uh, go ahead and go through this animation. Jason was supposed to take this out. Uh, and <laughs> um, so Spiffy was actually kind of inspired by the podcast. So on our podcast, uh, we talk a lot about consumer behavior. And for me, I'm also an Elon Musk uh, geek. And Elon talks about core principles. His core principles are physics. He's always talking about, well, if you want to send a ship from here to Mars, you're going to have to, you can't use, uh, let's see, uh, welds. You have to like mix the atoms together. And because of physics, we can do that. We don't do that on Jason Scott's show. We talk about consumer behaviors. So we spend a lot of time talking about the bifurcation and the convenience-oriented consumer. So all that was swirling around in my head. I had my first Uber experience. And the uh, this the series of things that lit up for me was all right. Services are going to go digital. We've seen products go digital in the form of e-commerce. If you look at GDP, consumer services are twice the size of consumer products. And then um, the and then as I looked out there, there was a lot of companies in the space, but none of them were going after the convenience-oriented consumer. Another hobby of, uh, I guess this is a shared one, is we like to coin phrases. One of the ones um, that I coined was zero friction addiction. So when consumers have these low friction experiences, not only are they great, but they amplify the friction of previously previous experiences you didn't think were frictiony. Um, Starbucks mobile app, for example. How many of you use the Starbucks mobile app, right? Once you do that, and then like the mobile app system's down, it's like the worst day of your life because you have to wait in line behind three people. And you're like, oh my God, I'm going to claw my eyes out. And before the mobile app existed, you're like, three people? Whoa, a short line. This is going to be a fast Starbucks visit. Um, so all that was swimming around in my head, and I was like, I wonder where I could participate in this idea. And I was gravitated to car care because I previously invested in a car wash. And then I researched, and car care has a minus 85 net promoter score, especially with women. How many of, uh, many of you don't have cars in New York, but how many of you have had a bad car experience, especially? Yeah, okay, good. You're my people. So, um, and another thing that fascinates me is the auto industry is going to go through this digital change that we've seen e-commerce go through, but it's also the car is changing. So I've had a Tesla since 2000. 12, and I've been living that kind of vehicle 2.0 lifestyle. So next slide. So started Spiffy um, in 2014, and today we're in 27 locations, uh, about a 50 million run rate, doubling. Uh, we have 250 vans across the United States and about 500 technicians. So that's, uh, that's a little bit of background on me. That's amazing, Scott. Um, and so uh, you know, Scott mentioned we started this podcast. The the joke is he and I met at a, a board meeting uh, uh, at, at shop.org. And he and after the meetings, we'd go to a bar and we would just talk shop about what was going on. And Scott's like, you know, we should record this. There's like eight other people that would be interested in this conversation. Um, and the joke is that like the next day I showed up with like $5,000 worth of audio equipment. I yep. think it's, it's nine. You always forget your mom. Yeah, yep. that's true. Nine, nine yeah, nine, nine listeners, listeners, including my mom, who gives me notes on every show. Um, hi mom. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so that's kind of how the, the show started. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, one of the topics that's most frequent, in fact, we often say it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show without talking about Amazon. Um, and so, you know, Amazon had their quarterly earnings, uh, last month and 
in the U.S., their, their GMV growth rate, they sold 6.7% more stuff than they did in Q1 of last year. Um, so that is a alarmingly slow rate of growth uh, by traditional Amazon standards. And if we click to the next slide, uh, the this month you've seen all these news articles about Amazon actually having too much warehouse space, too much what they call fulfillment center space, and how they're literally trying to sublease space to other people that they may have overinvested um, as as e-commerce starts to slow down. And if you click to the this uh, next slide, um. I actually graphed uh, my my uh, pandemic hobby is I learned Tableau by the way if anyone um, super exciting uh, other people learn how to bake bread um, I'm a geek what can I say uh, so I graphed e-commerce's growth rate versus Amazon's growth rate and historically. In the U.S., e-commerce has kind of grown about ten percent a year before the pandemic. Um, Amazon, despite being thirty-five to forty percent of of all e-commerce grows quite a bit faster, as you can see the gold line above the blue line. But when the pandemic hit, um, they uh, their their paths kind of linked, and and uh, you know for these last several months. E- Amazon has grown at about the rate of of e-commerce, and so there's a bunch of analysts that are freaking out. Like, is the the gravy train over? The good times done? Is Amazon selling off? Um, and so that's the first topic we want to talk about: is what what the heck is going on with Amazon, Scott? Yeah, and it's it's been interesting. Another one of my hobbies is um, Amazon fulfillment centers. This one's riveting, and uh, so this started. I think it was like 2005. I was driving to work and I saw some construction, and then, you know, a year later they put a big Amazon logo on it. And I was like, holy cow! And it was like a million square foot building. This is in the Raleigh Durham area. So I was like, I wonder how many of these there are. So I went onto Amazon's website and they said something like, we have around 10 fulfillment centers. And I was like, that. That seems low. Um, and then what I discovered at that point in time was no one was tracking from the Wall Street analyst through um, Amazon's fulfillment center rollout. So so started working on that and quickly discovered that they had about 60 fulfillment centers built and they were building like another 60. So I started publishing data on this. Um, and fun fact, they always use airport codes. So this was like RDU3. So they use RD1 and they use numbers and, and this kind of thing. So I get to know about the Amazon fulfillment center um, really interesting, you know, uh, really deeply. So so I think, and then one of our most popular, popular episodes, uh, I think we got to like 12 listeners on this one. Yeah. So a 30% increase. Yeah. Um, this was uh, February 18th. We did episode 287, which was a deep dive into Amazon's fulfillment network. Um, and to me, it's just endlessly fascinating. I haven't been to a fulfillment center, but I have been able to sneak into some of the delivery stations and that that's kind of a fun thing. So, so what ties into this is what I think happened is Amazon was in front of their capacity needs before the pandemic, and then the pandemic flipped that upside down. So I think what's happened is over that time where they're in line with e-commerce, they were just out of capacity. They literally couldn't ship. They couldn't build enough fulfillment centers fast enough and whatnot. So during the pandemic, they have built an incredible amount of infrastructure. Um, so I have some data here. Um, the other thing you need to know is in 2018, um, another this was probably the most popular one. Jason and I coined the phrase "shipageddon." Has anyone heard this one? And this was where we we, could, we got on like the Today Show, yeah, the Morning the Today America. Show, they're that. like, "What fun. is this shipageddon? Should we be concerned?" 
Yes, you should. That was us. That yeah. was us. We, we caused that. And uh, uh, we take all the credit. And what happened is Jason has um, many of his Tableau slides. He had this uh, – he has a slide that shows the FedEx capacity, USPS, and UPS, and then Amazon's growth. And you can see that Amazon alone, then you layer in e-commerce, um, was going to – we would run out of capacity for shipping. Well, Amazon also saw this. So in 2018, they started a program called the DSP. Now, this is confusing because they have two DSP programs. So there's one in your world of ads. I don't even know what that one is. Yeah. Delivery service professionals is, is the one I focus on. And what Amazon did is they basically took a, a page out of the FedEx playbook and they went and they built a network of 1099 contractors to do last mile deliveries. So whenever an Amazon Prime van comes to your house, that is an Amazon DSP. They have built that entire network since 2018, which is pretty crazy. Okay. So the problem with that network, though, is they started it out of fulfillment centers and very quickly it was obvious the fulfillment centers were, were when you have these million square foot buildings and you're just putting things through a door or a loading dock, you can't really load vans quickly. So, so what they've done is they've come up with a new format called a delivery station. And this is a smaller, about a 200,000 square foot thing. And what it is, it's largely attached to a fulfillment center. And it's pretty wild. At 8 a.m., the fulfillment center doors open and these rafts of, of containers come down and there's these vans all lined up and staged in line where they go furthest packages away get loaded in the first vans and then they're off and it's like a military operation it's, it's like d-day it's like crazy to watch this happen um hundreds of employees loading these vans that get deployed through the day um so just to give you some numbers that started at zero and now they have built uh, 487 delivery stations for small products 108 delivery stations for large. So they've built about 600 delivery stations in the last three years, um, which is pretty crazy. Um, that represents, um, so there's, so, so another thing Amazon does is each delivery station has four or five DSPs and they play them off each other. So they're small businesses and then they give them all these scorecards. And if you score well, you get more routes and trucks. So there's like this gamification and I've met some of these guys and they're just like constantly going at each other. And, and, and Amazon is very clever because they're like stuck in this game gamification. And they don't really realize it, that Amazon's just playing them off each other. The other thing that fascinates me is they're all run by this, you know, data in the cloud. So, so everyone in this operation, there's no real managers or anything. They're just like all looking at their, their, um, uh, their devices and it's telling them what to do every day. So that's kind of, as a computer science guy, that kind of fascinates me. We do have AI overlords that, that just kind of run things. Um, so there's two, 2,500 DSPs and hundred thousand vans. And so they've invested a ton in that. And then that's, just the delivery stations. So they've also added, um, you know, uh, 88 sortable fulfillment centers. Uh, basically, they've invested so much in infrastructure during the pandemic that I think we're going to see these numbers. They, they're, they actually have admitted they have too much capacity, but I think it's going to give them the ability to reaccelerate versus e-commerce because they now have the capacity in this new world. So it was a long answer to that one. But, but um, you know, I, I think what's, what's key to me is if you buy into this theory that getting product to the consumer fast and efficiently is going to be key, they've gotten the cost to deliver a package in that last month. All down to a dollar fifty with this network, you know. So, so many of you that are shipping products and you're looking at FedEx at eight, nine, ten, twelve dollars in different zones. That's kind of the economics they've baked into that. Now, I've for a long time thought one of Amazon's unusual playbooks is they'll build something really, really crazy expensive, and you're like, "This is insane," and then they'll open it up. Which for most people in the old school world, you're like, "That doesn't make any sense," because you used to build these proprietary networks like Walmart's data center and computer infrastructure that was proprietary and gave them an edge. Amazon's philosophy is let's open it up. That makes the product 
product better, and we get third parties to help pay for the expense. So this is obvious now with AWS and the Amazon third-party network. I believe that there will be a day when I could ship. I'm in Raleigh, you're in Charlotte. I'll be able to ship you a package. I'll just put it on my front porch. The Amazon DSP will pick it up, and I'll ship you a package for 3 bucks, right? So it'll be half the cost of FedEx or UPS, but they'll make you know, 100% or 50% gross margin on it. Um, so so that's going to be really interesting. And then they'll be able to offer that. They are actually offering a lot of that kind of capability to other merchants. So so that'll be interesting. You'll have to face this decision of if you're, you're Cody or someone like that, do you want to switch from FedEx to Amazon shipping your products? Um, and so, so there's a lot of really interesting things going on in, in the Amazon world. Those are some of the big ones. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to kind of put that in consumer terms, before the pandemic, Amazon had invested something like $50 billion in their fulfillment centers. And so I like it wasn't that long ago, I would talk to clients and they're like, hey, Jason, we've got the secret plan to compete with Amazon. We're, we're going to buy a warehouse in uh, uh, Kentucky because that can ship to the whole U.S. and we're going to compete with Amazon. And I'm like, you realize Amazon has 109 million square foot fulfillment centers and $50 billion worth of infrastructure. Um, and that that was before the pandemic from about mid 2018 to today. They've invested another 50 billion dollars and literally doubled the the size of their capacity. So the the likelihood of anyone in the U.S. competing with them in terms of capacity is next to null. And as Scott mentioned, in 2018, we had this bad holiday where we didn't deliver everything on time. Amazon became you know aware that they weren't going to grow uh, where they wanted to grow using third-party parcels. And I think there's this famous quote from Fred Smith at FedEx, like, uh, Amazon's an amazing company, but they're a partner. They're not a competitor. They, they never understand the competitiveness of the the parcel business. And back then, Amazon delivered 8% of their own packages. That was 2018. Today, Amazon delivers over 60% of their own packages, right? Um, and so in a very short period of time, they, uh, they've created this phenomenal capability. So the magic question is, is this a blip? Like, is, is the, are they going to start growing faster than e-commerce as soon as we get out of all this crazy economic uh, madness? Or like, is this going to be the new normal for Amazon that they're you know, so big that they can't grow as fast anymore? My prediction is, yes, they will. I think they'll get the capacity. They'll, they'll turn on these other things. Another area that I think they'll get into, and, and we've covered this on the show, is what do we call these things? Like the GoPuffs of the world? Do you have a fancy name for them? Yeah, uh, instant delivery or instant ultra fast delivery. delivery. Yeah. Um, uh, Amazon, part of this infrastructure they built out is in that similar vein. So sem- same day infrastructure where, you know, these delivery stations are getting smaller and smaller and closer and closer to the consumer so that they can do same delivery. In fact, at the delivery station I was at, they do a 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. loadout. And then everyone comes back at two and they do another loadout of a smaller portion of ANS for same day delivery orders that have come in. So, so, so I think I think what they're going to do is they're going to crank it up. Prime will eventually go to same day, and then that's going to create a whole new stimulation of demand, and then they will grow faster than the e-commerce. Yeah, I, I feel like that's another funny one. Is I talk to like there's a bunch of new startups that are like trying to do e-commerce fulfillment, and they're like, we're going to do two day delivery just as well as Amazon. Yeah, this is this is a good segue into Shopify. Um, so one of the things that is defied explanation for me is the rise of Shopify. Shopify is a great platform, great CEO, 
but they've got this valuation of like 50 times forward or forward revenue, which just never made sense to me. Um, and then they started poking the bear. So they started to give Amazon and Jeff Bezos a hard time. Like when his uh, pictures leaked, um, they were like making fun of him. And I was like, this, this, you and I have but seen Scott, this. They're, they're arming the rebel. <laughs> We've seen this play out where like, um, who was it? The CEO of Macy's said, uh, Amazon will never get into apparel. And if they do, it'll be a bloodbath. Um, everyone that makes one of those statements, they end up a, you know, ruining their career and then B very, being very wrong. Um, so, uh, Terry Lundgren, <laughs> Terry Lundgren. Yeah. Thanks. Um, he was also in the, in that NRF board meeting. Um, the, uh, so, so, so what's really interesting is Shopify has been poking at Amazon and then Shopify announced that they were going to, um, you know, arm the rebels with two day shipping and they were going to build a fulfillment center. And we're like, okay, this doesn't ever end well. Then in this, then like literally 30 days later they announced, and they were going to spend a billion dollars and build a fulfillment center or 2 billion, um, which, you know, Amazon spent a hundred billion. So that's kind of a ridiculous two, And then they were going to get everywhere two day shipping and be in parallel with prime, which doesn't make any sense. Then they punted on that and then they acquired deliver. Um, and then at the same time, and this is a good segue into our next topic, they basically said, um, and, and this goes back to March of this year, uh, last year, we saw that after Apple's WWDC that year, last year, they announced IDFA and IATT, which is uh, next slide. Yeah, jump two slides, actually. One more. Yeah. So you and I were like, this is going to change everything and destroy all these middle players. So so basically, uh, you guys probably all know what this is. Uh, I'll let Jason describe it better. These new privacy things basically get rid of not only third-party cookies for web-based things, but if you have an app-based ecosystem, you, you get rid of tracking it all altogether. Um, and we were like freaking out about it. No one else was, I think. <laughs> and I felt like Shopify was going to be worse. Cause if you think about Shopify, the bulk of their traffic comes from social, then they sit in the middle and then they, they have the merchant. Well, these things in the middle aren't going to really exist in a world where you can't track anything. And sure enough, this is really caught up not only to them, but the social media guys. So we're entering this world where Shopify poked the bear. Amazon has a bunch of stuff going on that hasn't even come out to counteract Shopify. And when that stuff comes out, and then I don't know if you've seen it, but Shopify is down like 98% or something like like that because they've lost they lost a lot of credibility with this fulfillment thing and then you know the overall economic has been a really interesting impact and then i think everyone realizes that they're really um, exposed to these idfa changes yeah yeah and so i think most people in this room are probably painfully familiar um with idfa but it, essentially it it's become harder to track a, a consumer across multiple websites so all these uh, advertising platforms that aggregate an audience and send them to third-party content sites um, used to be able to buy a super efficient audience on that third-party site, and then they used to be able to measure how effective it was when they sent people to that site and what they ultimately bought. And so because of the the uh, tracking um, deficiencies, two bad things happen. We can't buy as good an audience as we used to buy, so the, the buy is less efficient, so the CPM is higher, and we can't measure how effective it was, right? And so... Uh, there's a lot of impacts, certainly for all of you folks that are involved in advertising, there's, there's a very direct impact on those changes. But the, the secondary impact Scott and I talked a lot about is before these changes, it felt like Shopify and Facebook, for example, were cozying up. Like uh, Shopify has a, a digital wallet called ShopPay, which is very successful, and they actually made it possible to buy items not from Shopify sellers on Facebook – with shop pay and you're like oh man it's very synergistic uh facebook gets the audience and then they send them to a shopify seller to to close the deal and it seemed like they they had this partnership and we saw idfa coming and we're like oh man 
this is going to break up because in the new world, the Facebooks of the world need to own that conversion. They need to own the sale so they can see the conversion data so they can report on the efficacy. They need, instead of third-party data, they need first-party data. And so now all these advertising platforms, most notably Facebook and Google, are doubling down on becoming commerce platforms, which you, you've talked for a long time about. Uh, Google is secretly a marketplace. Yeah. And then... Um I think ultimately Facebook has to buy Shopify or build Shopify. So, so that'll be interesting. Now the price is down before when it was like 40 times forward, you're like, they'll never do that. But I think now, but they do seem, it's hard to know what's going to happen at Facebook because they're so focused on the metaverse that I don't know if Shopify fits into that somewhere inside of there, you know, someone watches revenue versus like forward things. And, and if you, if you care about revenue at Facebook, you would buy, you would buy Shopify. Um, the other thing that's really interesting, another one of my weird habits is I love to listen to public um, quarterly calls. Probably the worst quarterly call I've ever heard, and I have a lot of empathy for this because I've done many of these, is this the Snapchat, the last the the Q one Snapchat call. They basically it was like they just rolled in there half drunk and had no idea what was going on in the business. And like the analysts are asking him questions like, Do you think this is the bottom of IDFA? And the last quarterly call they had said that was the bottom. And they're like, Well, you know, last time we said it was the bottom, we think this is a bottom. Uh J- Jason, do you know if it's a bottom? It was just like that kind of a thing. So so if you're an investor and you're sitting there, you're like, these guys have no idea how bad this is, where the bottom is, or how to remediate it. Um and you know that that leg down, I think um that really big one there, that was right after that quarterly call. Everyone at Wall Street was like, these guys have no clue what's going on. So it's really interesting that you know Wall Street is very much awake that these changes that Apple and then subsequently Google have made in Android have really just clobbered these ad networks that, that kind of are sit between ad networks and, and kind of relying on, on third-party data. The converse of that, so every time there's a, a, a there's a zero-sum game here, every time there's a loser, there's a winner. The big winner here is retail networks. And I, I heard that we're going to have Walmart talk about their ad network. Um, I'm the Amazon guy. So Amazon's um, ad network doesn't get a lot of play here. Um, but just as of last year, it was $30 billion in revenue, and they're growing that 25%. And I, I know they have a massive amount of investment going on there. They have a new marketing cloud. They're doing a ton of stuff in there because they realize, hey – Thanks, Apple and, and Google. The, you have created gold dust out of first-party data. Guess who has the most first-party data on buyer intent and conversion? It's Amazon. Um, but then if you're a other retailer, be it a Walmart, a Target, and, and even smaller retailers are getting into this in kind of more of a, I call it a Battlestar Galactica kind of a way, but more of like a, a shared data kind of a way. Um, that's Am I be Starbucks really in this scenario? You are. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, I think you and I are the only ones that got that. Uh, the, uh, um, so, so that's, it's really fascinating to watch this one change in a mobile platform just cause these billion dollar ripples down there. And you kind of wonder who at, at Apple, did they think about this? Were they like, you know, that Mark Zuckerberg, he's too big for his britches. Let's, let's clobber him and the rest of these guys. But you know, they don't love Amazon either. So, so they have to be kind of frustrated that it has helped enable one type of competitor, but they just clobbered the other ones. Yeah, yeah, it's uh I mean, it's super fascinating. I uh the the retail the emergence of retail media networks, I think, you know, is is a direct cause of this essentially that you you know, you now have all this first party data at Walmart and Target and to your point like the craziest retail media network to me is Gap. And the reason I say that, like most retail media networks 
primarily sell ads to endemic advertisers. So, you know, Cody wants to sell through Sephora. Sephora uh, it launches a retail media network. Um, they have some leverage to get Cody to invest in uh, an ad on Sephora. Um, but Gap doesn't have any endemic advertisers. Like Gap only sells their own stuff, right? So uh, they're now, you know, trying to go find advertisers that are synergistic with the Gap lifestyle and sell ads. So um, I don't think that could have ever happened in a world in which you could really cost effectively buy that audience from Facebook. But today, um, because it's harder for the Facebooks of the world, I think this is a, a, a permanent shift we're seeing. And another reason that it's, it's really an imperative for Facebook uh, to become a commerce platform of their own. Yeah. This is probably a good time to pause and see if there's any questions. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Amazon or IDFA, any questions on those two topics? Any other comments? How many of you have felt some kind of an impact from the IDFA thing that's caused you to change strategy? None. All right. Well, I guess yeah. we're wrong. Yeah, uh, we usually are. So there's that. Um, I feel like a lot of the success of the show is Scott and I rarely agree. And I feel like people like to hear us debate. Right. Um, and so the, the last topic we put together um, is, uh, uh, again, one that's probably only near and dear to my heart, but the, uh, U.S. Department of Commerce publish all this data about the health of U.S. retail, right? And I'm this dork that, like, wakes up at 8 a.m. I'm kidding. I'm up at 8 a.m., right? I wasn't supposed to say that out loud. Uh, uh, on, the, on the day the data is released to, like, load this stuff into Tableau. And so May um, was a super uh, exciting month because that's the first time we get the Q1 quarterly data um, for all the retail categories and e-commerce. And so I kind of put together a quick quick summary, and we, I, I just want to hear if you're surprised or not. So first thing, if you, sorry, if you go back just one side for just a sec, uh, from, from January through April in the U.S., we sold $2.2 trillion of stuff. That's almost 10% more stuff than we sold in 2020. It's 36% more stuff than we sold in 2019. So everybody talks about how hard the last two years have been and how challenging and difficult, and that's all true. But what doesn't get hit is it's been the greatest two years in the history of retail. Like we've grown way faster than we ever have before. And so if you flip to this next slide, this is this visualization that Scott and I kind of created. Um, this is sales by month. So that gray line is retail sales in 2019. And then the gold line is 2020. So you can see, oh my gosh, we all panicked in April when the, the pandemic first happened and we had this dip. But 2020, we actually sold more stuff than we did in 2019, even with the, the pandemic. What we sold changed dramatically. We'll talk about that. And then we get to 2021 and look how much higher 2021 was. Like 20, everyone was like, oh my gosh, was 2020 a weird year and growth is going to go down? And instead, growth went way up. And so at the end of 2021, I was advising all my peers that worked at clients to retire, right? Because your comps are going to be impossible from, from 2021. So that was a great time to go out on top. Um, and I was really worried that 2022 was going to come in below that. And of course, we're talking about all these economic headwinds and things that we may talk about. Um, but so far in 2022, we're even ahead of 2021. So you hear all this news about how like, oh man, the rate of growth has slowed. We grew so much in 2021 and now we're only growing a little bit and doom and gloom and all these things. But when you see this picture, you go, wait a minute, we had the best year in the history of retail last year and we're doing even better this year. It's actually quite a rosy story. But if you flip to the next slide, um, of course, there are certain categories that did especially well, right? And so if you were a gas station and you got utterly creamed, 
during the pandemic and no one was driving anywhere, it was easiest to grow fast. If you were a restaurant that no one went to, it was easiest to grow fast. Um, uh, apparel that nobody miscellaneous, was buying. That's my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I wish I sold more miscellaneous. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 it's the hardest category to buy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so you could see there's categories that kind of outperform the industry average and there's categories that underperform the industry average. Food and beverage is grocery, right? So even though grocery had a really good time in the pandemic, it's actually underperforming the overall category because there were some of those other categories that were so much. And whenever I talk about this, people are like, yeah, Jason, but all the growth you're talking about isn't consumer changes or more spending, it's inflation, right? And so uh, I actually tried uh, this experiment of taking the inflation out. And I looked at the last three years of growth in uh, 2018 dollars. Um, and as you can see, uh, inflation used to not matter very much in the data. Uh, uh, so through 2020, and then we started opening up this gap where inflation legitimately has an impact on our sales right now. Um, but even if you just look at the gold line, which is taking all the inflation out, um, the growth is still very meaningful and phenomenal. So it's a, like, well, you, you certainly inflation is part of the reason that we're seeing a lift in sales, it's a mistake to assume that uh, people are just buying less stuff and they're just having to pay more for that stuff and that there really isn't a consumer change. There really is a consumer change here. And so we want to double click on a couple categories. And the first category I grabbed because it's super near and dear to Scott's heart is automotive, right? So they sold uh, half a trillion bucks last year. Um, they, they're up 50% from the bad year of 2020. And if you go to the next slide, um, you'll, you'll see the you know, their, their shape that obviously the, you know, the pandemic gave them a temporary dip, but again, like most categories, they did slightly better in 2020, 2021 was a phenomenal year. And then it seems like 2022 is having a little bit of trouble comping against that. What, what's going on in the apparel uh, or the automotive industry? Was a guy that buys like 30 vans a month. Um, you can't buy vehicles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so there, there are no vehicles out there. It's pretty crazy. Um, I had to buy my daughter a vehicle and we had to wait like six months and then I had to pay like over sticker, which went against all grains of, of my being, but had to do it. Yeah. Uh, and things we do for our kids. Combo of like, there's increased demand and there's these supply chain constraints and there's no, no chips, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it went from chips. Now they seem to have the chips, but then all the zero COVID policy in China has made all the other inputs go to hell in a handbasket. So, so, so that there was some supply that got out cause they had all these vehicles waiting for chips. The chips have gotten there, uh, but now they can't make a lot of the other components of the vehicle is my understanding. Yeah. And, you know, we, we order um, we ordered a hundred vans and we got three delivered this wow. year from from new, which is just crazy. Yeah. Um, the other problem I'm up against is there's this other company buying a lot of vans called Amazon, and they're buying. Aspects. I'm buying. I'm buying what feels like a lot to to us a hundred, and they're buying like you know twenty thousand. So so yeah. they they seem to get a higher spot than they're me. higher in the queue. Yeah, than you? yeah. I yeah. think so. Yeah. So if you take nothing else out of uh, this this segment. Um, if you have to sell a car right now, do not use Blue Book value. Your car is way more valuable than Blue Book value. And before you sell your car, get a new car. So it's kind of like, uh, yeah, because you may be uh, hoofing it if you don't. You may be yeah. getting to know the Uber app really well. Yeah, and whichever car you get, get it clean by Get Spiffy. Yes. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's, uh, a lot of people in here are in the CPG space. So grocery is super important. This is a category that I follow really closely, almost 300 billion in sales in the first quarter. Uh, and again, it's, it's up, it's up. Uh, and by the way, a new coin we turned is year over three, two years ago, right? Like that's the new, the new black, uh, in earnings calls is everyone's talking about their sales versus 2019, which was the last 
quote unquote normal year. So groceries up 20, 21% from, from that normal year. Um, and we've kind of had this 8% growth rate, which is better than grocery historically grew. If you go to the next slide, you see our shape again. Um, grocery is, is a unique one, right? Like, you had average sales in 2019 and then 2020 was great for grocery, right? Because nobody went to restaurants. Like, so all the calories that you used to buy from restaurant, you're buying from grocery. So that gold line is way up. And then in 2021, they had trouble comping against it in the first half of the year where all that growth happened, but they still 2021 ended up, up about 10% from 2020 and uh, 2022 is continuing to be up so far from from 2021. And so the way I like to think about this, if you jump to the next slide, is share of stomach. So this uh, uh, gray line is how much uh, calories you buy from grocery stores. And the gold line is how many calories you buy from restaurants. And historically, over the last 10 years, it's been almost a 50-50 split. So then the pandemic happened and we got 70% of our calories from grocery stores, 30% of our calories from restaurants. And everyone's like, wait, how did we get any calories from restaurants? They're all closed. Uh, DoorDash, right? It was all uh, off-prem consumption. Um, and then we've been waiting to see what would happen. Could grocery permanently hang on to that lead? Would restaurants come back? And you can see over the last year, it kind of closed the gap. But then look what's happened. These Like this year, restaurants are way above grocery. And so the magic question here is, was there pent-up demand and we're all rushing out to restaurants because we haven't been there? And that's kind of a a one-time spike and it's going to normalize back to 50-50? Or is the new normal that we're all so sick of being in the kitchen for the last two years that, that grocery is going to have a real decline? Because if, if you're you know, a, a, a leading grocer in the U.S., this, this is a really scary slide at the moment. Do you have a, a guess? Yeah, I'll throw a Freakonomics curveball in here. Yeah. Um, I think an, you know, one input into this is the work-from-home trend. So when you're working from home, it's a lot easier to go to the grocery store, prep the veggies between Zooms or while you're on a Zoom or something like that. You're like chopping below below the line uh, and um, and just prepare a meal. Right. But when you're in the office and you work late and, and now you're kind of gone back to that office lifestyle, then I think that's going to be a big driver. Um, I think. I think we're going to go back to working in the office. I, I think when everything's up and to the right, you're like, okay, everyone can work from home. But as things get tougher and we go into recession, one of the levers executives can pull is, well, we need everyone back in the office. Um, so, so I think we're going to get back to that. It won't be the same. So it's not going to be whatever we were at before. It'll be 10 to 20% lower. But I think that's going to be the big driver of this one is the work from, from home trend. And, and I bet it's spiking now. Um, because of that. So I'm, I'm seeing, and we have data at Spiffy for this. So one of the things we do at Spiffy is we go to office parks as an amenity. If I look at Dallas, the Raleigh, Durham area and Atlanta, we're almost back to 80 or 90% pre pandemic levels at office parks. Now you look at, uh, blue States like California, New York, et cetera, and you're like at zero. So, so ultimately, I don't know if that separation uh, remains or not, but, but ultimately we're seeing, people get back to the office park, at least in this Southeast kind of region, which is, which is, I think that's going to drive this more than what you show here. Yeah. And so then the, the last, uh, category we're going to talk about is, uh, obviously most near and dear to our heart is, is e-commerce. Yes. Um, so, uh, in, in March, we sold almost $100 billion worth of stuff. Uh, inside baseball thing, this is data from the U.S. Department of Commerce. It comes out every every month. Uh, there's better data that comes out every quarter. This quarter, we had a crazy thing happen. Um, the U.S. Department of Commerce restated the data that they had published in the past, and they actually added 
$100 billion of extra e-commerce sales last year. They said we've been underreporting how big e-commerce was. So you may have earlier in the year seen these articles in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere talking about how um, the e-commerce craze is over and retail has caught up. And it, it's a much more complicated story than that. Again, e-commerce is up 55% from 2020. So uh, th- that's uh, going to be tough to comp against. Um, the, if we flip to the next slide. I, I, well, I, I disagree yeah. with their methodology. So we had them on the show. Yeah. It was like U.S. Department ge- of Commerce. Yeah, it was the geekiest. I had to like break in. Jason was like, you were just like. It would be like if Elon yeah. Musk was on the show. Yes. You. Yeah. You were yeah. just like slobbering all over yourself. It was embarrassing. Yeah. And uh, thank God. We, Thanks we're for audio- pretending that's th- unusual. <laughs> thank God we're audio only. Uh, and uh, the. But then as we got into it, you know, they count like curbside pickup as e-commerce. And to me as an e-commerce guy, I have to kind of throw the flag on that one because, you know, going during the pandemic, you know, order online, have it shipped to me. And now I just go to the Best Buy and sit outside and they bring it to the store. And now I've converted that to an e-commerce sale. That doesn't really pencil for me. So, so I think these numbers are overinflated because all the curbside pickup flipped over to e-commerce. Yeah, there's, there's a common debate, and uh, you and I violently disagree on that one. Um, Digital influence, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you... So if you... Uh, what's, what's happening is e-commerce orders are being fulfilled from the store, but you think about all these orders at Target that you place online and get delivered to your home from a shipped person or even from a, a U.S. post office... Target's fulfilling 96% of all their e-commerce orders from stores. So curbside pickup is just another e-commerce order that's fulfilled from a store. And so, again, like to me... But I had to get in my car and I go to Best Buy and a guy in a blue shirt. The only difference is the blue shirt walked 50 feet to me versus me walking 50 feet in the store. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, But so, yeah, we'll agree to disagree. That's e-commerce. Smart smart people can disagree. Uh, And us. Um, So (laughs) you you see the shape again. You know, again, 2020 accelerated e-commerce. 2021 still did better although slower and so far in 2022 we're doing better again but wait what's the one that you hate so much what's the chart you hate the goldman sachs one uh yeah well yeah i mean there's a couple different uh mckenzie or mckenzie yeah that's it yeah so we'll talk about about that yeah so jump to the next slide uh so McKinsey, at the early in the pandemic, came out with this thing and said hey e-commerce has been perfect permanently accelerated by 10 years um, which is utterly wrong, right? Like um, e-commerce like kind of went three years ahead and now some categories are still three years ahead like grocery, but a lot of categories are much closer to where we'd forecast, which I'll, I'll show you in just one sec. Before I get to that though, I just wanted to kind of show you pre-pandemic, the gold line is how fast retail grew. This, the gray line is how fast e-commerce grew. Again, Scott and I will disagree about how to count e-commerce, um, but still Retail tended to grow 3 to 4% a year. A great year would be 5%. E-commerce grew 10 to 15% a year. Um, and, and in the pandemic, obviously, e-commerce wildly accelerated and retail kind of stayed flat. People thought it went down, but it kind of stayed flat. Um, so then we had this thing that's never happened in my lifetime, um, which is in uh, like May of 2021, because retail had been so soft for so long, retail actually grew faster than e-commerce. And we're now having this topsy-turvy thing where the rate of growth for e-commerce and retail are very similar. And so, uh, you know, I said, hey, what what would have happened if we didn't have the pandemic? So this next slide is kind of um, showing the growth rate for e-commerce and uh, showing where we would have forecasted e-commerce to go. And again, in the Wall Street Journal, they showed the blue line under the gold line because... They had this old U.S. Department of 
commerce data. And if you go to the next slide, I zoom they, in on they that. They don't wake up at 8 o'clock and put it into exactly. Tableau. Like, you know. They don't know Tableau like I know Tableau. Um, and uh, shout out to all my friends at Salesforce for that own Tableau. Uh, so you, you can see it's it's very noisy right now, but it does seem like the pandemic permanently accelerated e-commerce. But, you know, one to two years of acceleration, not not 10 years. And so then I think the very last slide I put together on the shape of e-commerce is, and this is a scary one to me, I'm curious what you think about this. While e-commerce is continuing to grow well, uh, what is scary is this is traffic to the top 10 e-commerce sites in the U.S. And this is a different story. Um, the gold line, the gray line was before the pandemic. The blue line, the, the gold line was after the pandemic. But you can see traffic went down in 2021, even though sales went up and traffic is down even further in 2022. And so what this means is fewer people are going to uh, e-commerce, the big e-commerce sites uh, less often, but they're buying more stuff when they go. So this will be our last question as we're, we're way over time. Uh, is that like an inflation thing? Is that a change in consumer behavior? What, what, do you have any hypothesis what's going on here? So I think people were pegged at home for a while and they bought everything they possibly could and they've bought forward. So they've like, they got new laptops, they've got their fancy exercise bikes. Um, they've, they've got all that stuff, their Pelotons, and now they're just spent out on stuff and now they're wanting to do experiences and services. So, so that's where the dollars are going. If you, you know, I think the gainer of this traffic is probably, airline sites, hotel sites. Um, another, we have visibility in this at Spiffy because our largest customer set is rental car companies. Um, we had a record day yesterday. So people are traveling like, you know, pre-pandemic levels, uh, and, which is really interesting. So, so the dollars they do want to spend, the discretionary dollars are going to experiences and, and not services. I'd called this a year ago. I was a year early. Yeah. Um, sadly, many of our predictions. We are have at a the forecast time. every year, and I get to cream Scott in the forecast. <laughs> well, I, I don't know what yeah, the history I, I doesn't show that, but you guys don't know that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so I think that's what's going on. So, so I, I, you know, but I, but I feel like a really, really interesting indicator is going to be Amazon Prime Day. So that's going to be in July of this year, and um, you know, we call it Prime Day, but every other retailer has glommed onto it and sees a bump from it. So it's kind of this fabricated holiday, not unlike Singles Day. That, uh, yeah, um, that that uh you know that is going to be really interesting data point so so that could you know the the bullish cases that's going to stimulate people to be like oh yeah i do need a couple other you know cables or a battery or whatever it is um so we'll see that'll be an interesting data point that, that i think will set us up for holiday and we'll get a pretty good indication of how this is going to go yeah. will the consumer be like okay i'm all traveled out now i want to buy more things or will they continue down this services dollar spend path yeah i i do think it's a really complicated economy right now. Part of this is inflation and inflation, I think, is hitting e-commerce harder than than the the sort of CPI numbers, because the price of a lot of the goods that tend to sell on e-commerce are, are tend to be there's higher. supply chain, a lot of stuff you just can't get. Yeah. So there's there's constraints, but also consumer behavior has changed. There are categories that we would never sell on e-commerce before the pandemic that we are now. So one of them that we talked about is automotive. Um, that's a big ticket item, right? So you need less visits to sell a big uh, a Tesla than you than you did to sell a TV. Um, and another one is grocery. And when I say that, people are like, Jason, are you high? Grocery. And I am high. I just had my knee replaced and I'm on some good meds. Um, the uh, I wore it out going on store visits. Um, the <laughs> The... Grocery isn't that expensive, but 
Grocery sales and e-commerce are a week's worth of groceries. It's 60 to 120 items. So the ticket is actually a lot higher per visit. So some of these new categories becoming more important combined with inflation, combined with the supply chain constraints, I think all conspire to do that. And that's kind of our our last takeaway because it's it's happened again. If you go to the next slide, um, we have used way more than our allotted time, but there was no one that could pull us off the stage. Um, and so uh, uh, I super appreciate it. And uh, Scott, any closing words? Yeah, do anyone have any questions? Yeah, hi. Yeah. So uh, to repeat the question really quick, uh, big trend in buy now, pay later. Um, Apple just announced that they were going to have their own flavor of buy now, pay later built into Apple Pay uh, this this week at, at their event. Um, I, I've seen some interesting consumer behavior and I'm a little little incredulous on it because it's always sponsored. When you dig into it, it's like sponsored by a firm. And <laughs> so um, but what it what it shows is millennials and Gen Z, they don't like to have as much open credit. They kind of view that negatively. Um, and I see this. I have kids that are in their 20s and they they are they're freaked out by credit cards, but they like to attach that credit to a thing and then pay it off and be done with it. Um, so, so I think there's an argument to be made that there will be a generational the way we interact with credit will change and then people will after certain over a hundred dollars, they'll interact with it in that way. Um, so I think that's a really fascinating thing. And I want to see more data on that before I a hundred percent believe it, but yeah. I was super incredulous. And then I talked to my kids and they're like, yeah, that's how I think. And I was like, Whoa, I, I guess there, there may be something here. Yeah. And a, as usual, that's a really thoughtful and wrong answer. Um, for you. Yes. Yeah. I'm just teasing. <laughs> uh, no. So it, Buy now, pay later is huge right now. It's the fastest growing form of checkout. And per Scott's point, I would argue they've done an amazing job of branding, right? Like, oh, it's credit's evil, credit's bad. This is not credit, right? Um, and I, I talked to our traditional um, uh, financial customers and I, I talked to a family run bank that's a fourth generation bank. And the, the CEO is like, Jason, my family's been in the money uh, renting business, which I think that's an awesome way of calling the credit money money renting business uh, for a hundred years, and that buy now pay later dog doesn't hunt. Like it's it's just a bad version of of credit that's been rebranded, and um, at the moment it's working. Like it's more expensive to sell something with uh, with a firm or with a buy now pay later service than it is with a credit card, but retailers are all doing it because. They're selling more stuff because of it, right? So that's the argument at a firm. Uh, Best Buy, you should pay more to use buy now, pay later. Conversion rates go up. Because yep. conversion rates go up. The scary thing that's starting to come up is, uh, guess what's happening right now? 42% of all those buy now, pay later purchases are now in arrears, right? So so kids haven't kept up with those purchases. It's a scary What, what a firm would say is then on the front end, they can tighten the credit down. So yeah, so so the the jury is out, and I would say like this Amazon announcement is kind of an interesting nothing burger because guess how you pay for the the Amaz the Apple um, buy now pay later service with a credit card, right? So you're so it's it it's kind of like if if the buy now pay later services are rebranded credit and they kind of hide the fact that it's credit that the Apple buy now pay later is installment payments on a credit card. Um, so, so the Wait, jury is, is still out, but there is a fear that that this whole bubble of buy now, pay later is about to burst and whether it does or not, I would say there's too many of them. There's going to be a consolidation. Retailers are having a lot of pain about 
all the consumer requests they're getting to support all of them. And we call it NASCARing the checkout when like you have to, you know, have 57 logos on the checkout for all these different, different ways to pay. So I think it's kind of going away. Any other questions before they kick us off the stage? Awesome. Uh, well, thank you guys so much. Thanks, everybody. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 